0: Hi, this is John, by the way, and today I'm looking at the second part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 7. And what I love about these, I actually, I make a PowerPoint slide of three mountains, or three temples. I have Mount Sinai on the left, Mount of Beatitudes in the middle, and the Temple at Bountiful on the far right. And under Mount Sinai, I have written pre-mortal Christ. This is where Jehovah gave the law to Moses. The Mount of Beatitudes, I have the mortal Christ, who gave the higher law. And then the template bountiful, the resurrected Christ, who gave the higher law in the new world. When you've got the Mount of Beatitudes in the middle, where the Sermon on the Mount was, was given, I've got arrows to the left and to the right, because Jesus said, It hath been said of old right pointing to Mount Sinai but I say and this is what he says on this mountain we talked about that last week of the thesis antithesis you've heard it said of old time thou shalt not kill but I say don't be angry (laughs) and the arrow also goes over to the temple at Bountiful where he gave the new law to the Lamanites and Nephites who are righteous in the new world and also it's interesting that something changes in the Mount of Beatitudes The last verse in Matthew 5, be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. But in 3 Nephi 12, 48, be therefore perfect, even as I, or as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now that Jesus is a resurrected, a perfected being, I suppose. So there's that little change. Also, in the amount of Beatitudes, the people were astonished at Jesus' doctrine. He taught them as having authority from God and not as having authority from the scribes. And in the temple at Bountiful, the people were astonished because the law of Moses was fulfilled. Everything they had ever known was fulfilled in the law of Moses, and Jesus changed their entire religious worship there in the new world. So that's just a little chart. I have three mountains, and, and underneath each, the premortal Christ, the mortal Christ, and the resurrected Christ, and the different laws that he gave. In Matthew chapter 6, Three times the Lord says, Thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. So very much like in Matthew 5, this is a higher and an inner law, talking about your heart and your motives more than just your actions. Your actions are doing the right things, but now this higher law is doing them for the right reasons. In Matthew chapter 6, when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. That thine alms may be in secret. Thy Father, which seeth in secret himself, shall reward thee openly. When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. They love to to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. There's the motive. Verse 6, But when when thou prayest, go into thy closet. When thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father, which is in secret. Thy Father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. And the third time that phrase is given is about fasting. So we've got alms giving and praying and fasting. Verse eighteen. I'm sorry. Verse seventeen of Matthew six. When thou fastest, anoint thine head, wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. So this great statement here: Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor steal. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And great kind of tough introspective question to ask. Where, what do I treasure? Elder Joe J. Christensen, who was the, uh, I just remember that name because he was the president of the MTC when I was there. In your April 1999 general conference Elder Joe J. Christensen said, how do we determine where our treasure is? To do so, we need to evaluate the amount of time, money, and thought we devote to something. And, you know, you'll you wonder if the Lord's watching me, would it, would it be clear to Him from where I spend my time and my money and my thought that my treasure is with god or would it be more with college football i mean these are questions i'm asking myself so those are great introspective questions which this new inner higher law jesus gives to them in matthew 6 and 7. one of the things that i appreciate at the end of matthew 6 is in verse 25 and in verse 34 Verse 25 of Matthew 6, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye ye shall put on. Verse 34, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And I mentioned on the Follow Him podcast that I was reading a book, Dale Carnegie, years ago. I was trying to write a talk about worrying, which I think is probably on the Jumping Turtle site there. If you're listening to this, then you know what that is. And in reading that book, Dale Carnegie made an interesting statement that all of the other Bible translations don't use the word thought in this Sermon on the Mount. They use the word worry. And I'm holding in my hand a really wonderful little book I have called The Contemporary Parallel New Testament. And what's fun about this is the page I'm on has Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34 in eight different Bible translations, and I can compare them. <laughs> so, Matthew six twenty five, therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life. This is King James. And verse 34, take therefore no thought for the morrow. But in the New American Standard Bible, It says, for this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life. In verse 34, so do not worry about tomorrow. In the new century version, so I tell you, don't worry about the food or drink you need to live. Last verse, so don't worry about tomorrow. Contemporary English version, I tell you not to worry about your life and don't worry about tomorrow. New international version, now the NIV is one that's quite popular and you hear about that one a lot. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. Verse 34, therefore do not worry about tomorrow. New Living Translation, so I tell you, don't worry. Verse 34, so don't worry about tomorrow. The New King James Version, I'll have to look that up and see exactly when the New King James Version was produced. But it also says, therefore I say unto you, do not worry about your life. Verse 34, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. And then a very contemporary one is called the message. If you decide for God, living a life of God worship, it follows that you don't fuss about what's on the table at mealtimes. And lastly, give your entire attention to what God is doing right now and don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. So, only one translation in this Contemporary Parallel New Testament with eight translations uses thought. The rest all use worry. And that was the point I got from that Dale Carnegie, Dale Carnegie book, which was fun to, to verify and to look up. So, thankfully, in our inspired footnotes here, in footnote 25B of Matthew 6, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life. It says, GR, meaning Greek, and it says, anxious concern. So that does sound more like worry. And I'm so thankful for that difference because it doesn't sound right that we shouldn't even think about tomorrow, what we eat, what we drink, what we put on. Of course, we have to plan and we have to be responsible and we have to set goals even to take care of our families. And verse 34, therefore, take no thought for oh, No, we have to think about it, but we don't have to worry. There was a man who was the, he was a mental skills, what do they call it, sports psychologist for BYU named Craig Manning. He was actually a tennis pro who played pro tennis in Australia. I think he was from Australia, but he wrote a really good book called The Fearless Mind. And he talked about the difference between worrying and thinking in this book. So I'm quoting from Dr. Craig Manning. This is how I define worrying and thinking. Worrying is allowing our minds to attend to the future, fear, and the past, guilt. Thinking, on the other hand, is attending to the present, focusing on what needs to be done from one moment to the next, minimizing the anxiety that is often built up. That difference in sports makes a huge difference. You don't worry or regret the past, what happened, you know, to use golf as an example, on the past three or four holes in the sand traps and the bogeys, and you don't look ahead, I'm really worried about this water hazard coming up. But instead, all that matters in golf is the next shot. That's my favorite golf quote. All that matters in golf is the next shot. You think about, what am I doing for this shot? And that seems to be the same idea here that Jesus is talking about. Instead of looking back with regret or looking forward with worry, we focus on what's in front of us right now. What's the best thing I can do right now? And thinking for that. So that was a, I'm so glad I read that about worrying and thinking and how that's different. That makes a lot more sense to me. And then the end of verse 34 says in King James, a phrase that's kind of, for a brain like mine, hard to understand, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. What does that mean? The other translations say each day has enough trouble of its own. So instead, you think about today. You don't worry about tomorrow, worry about yesterday. You just work on today. Then the next chapter, so Matthew chapter 6, we've got do things, give alms, pray fast, do those things in secret, and your Heavenly Father will reward you openly. And don't worry about the tomorrow, but plan for it, think about it. And then, in chapter 7, Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount with some advice about judging. And we talked on Follow Him about this wonderful talk that President Dallin H. Oaks gave called Judge Not and Judging. And in that talk, President Oakes at the very beginning, said There are two kinds of judging, final judgments, which we are forbidden to make, and intermediate judgments, which we are directed to make, but upon righteous principles. That idea has blessed me a lot. I don't have to even worry about final judgments. And if people ask me, sometimes with a gotcha question, oh, so if I'm not in your church, I'm going to hell or something, and It's so nice to be relieved of, how should I know? I have no idea. I don't know your life. I don't know your trials. I don't know what you've been through. Those are all up to God. Now, intermediate judgments I'm directed to make. The uh, reference for that is your August 1999 Ensign, Judge Not and Judging. Great talk. And when I look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and we see how much of this is about this inner law and what we're becoming inside. It reminded me of a couple of, a couple of different talks. First of all, let me just read Matthew seven twenty one. 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's a lip service thing. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. And I've got in my margin there by Matthew 7.21, Say, Do, and Be. Or we might even think of the hymn or the song, I Am a Child of God. The original, as as you all know, I think I've talked about this before, of lyrics of Naomi Randall was, Teach Me All That I Must Know. And the story is that President Spencer W. Kimball suggested to change it to, Teach Me All That I Must Do. And President Dallin H. Oaks gave this talk called, The Challenge to Become, in the year 2000, and he talked about the idea of it's not really even what we do, it's what we become that is the, the goal, is should be the focus, is what kind of person am I becoming? So let me just read a paragraph from the challenge to become. The final judgment is not just an evaluation of the sum total of good and evil acts, what we have done, it is an acknowledgement of the final effect of our acts and thoughts, what we have become. It is not enough for anyone just to go through the motions. The commandments, ordinances, and covenants of the Gospel are not a list of deposits required to be made in some heavenly account. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is a plan that shows us how to become what our Heavenly Father desires us to become." Now, Based on this talk, which I just love, if it were up to me, I might change the song again to teach me all that I must be, because that is the focus. What are the things that I know and the things that I am trying to do helping me to become? In that same line of thinking, Elder Lynn G. Robbins gave a talk called What Manner of Men and Women Ought Ye to Be? And one of the things that caught my attention was this paragraph. Many of us create to-do lists to remind us of things we want to accomplish. But people rarely have to-be lists. Why? To-dos are activities or events that can be checked off the list when done. To-be, however, is never done. You can't earn check marks with to-bes. I can take my wife out for a lovely evening this Friday, which is a to-do. To-do. But being a good husband is not an event. It needs to be part of my nature, my character, or who I am. Or, as a parent, when can I check a child off my list as done? We are never done being good parents. And to be good parents, one of the most important things we can teach our children is how to be more like the Savior. Christ-like to-be's cannot be seen but they are the motivating force behind what we do, which can be seen. When parents help a child learn to walk, for example, we see parents doing things like steadying and praising their child. These do's reveal the unseen love in their hearts, and the unseen faith and hope in their child's potential. Day after day, their efforts continue, evidence of the unseen bees of patience and diligence. When I look at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, you can imagine Jesus coming into this world of very much Law of Moses, outward, observable behavior. And Jesus trying to take them to a higher, inner level of it's not just about what you do, it's about what's in your heart. And going over that in these three chapters. You've heard it said of old time. Don't do this, but I say don't do this. And those things were focused on the inside, doing things not to be seen on the outside, but doing things in secret that the Lord could see in secret. And the Lord who seeth in secret shall reward thee openly, because suddenly it's more about our motives and why we do what we do. And then, of course, chapter 7, not just saying Lord, Lord, but really making him the Lord of our life on the inside and having that be the highest motive. Easier said than done, of course. But that seems to be this higher law that he's inviting them to come up to in this amazing Sermon on the Mount, which he will give again in 3 Nephi 12 to them with some some other things that we'll get to talk about next year when we focus more closely on the Book of Mormon. Well, I hope these... Ideas have been helpful to you. These three mountains or temples and this the Savior in these three different times of His existence as the pre-mortal Christ, the mortal Christ, and the resurrected Christ, giving these sermons, Law of Moses in the Sinai, and the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount, and as well as the Sermon at Bountiful. I hope this has been helpful, and we'll talk to you next time.